I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. to the Explaining History podcast. And today I'm going to look at a fairly murky part of uh, British history, one that doesn't really uh, get much attention. Um, and now it is the, the various and all unsuccessful um, considered uh, plots to overthrow the governments of Harold Wilson in the 1960s and 70s. Um, there were um, the, the the normal way of thinking about a an established democracy like Great Britain is that military coups don't happen in these sorts of countries, largely because in order for ruling elites to retain power, um, they have uh, more more direct and, and democratic means or electoral means anyway uh, of doing so. But the uh, pace of um, decolonization, gradual relative economic decline, social and cultural change in 1960s Britain led uh, a variety of uh, sometimes quite crackpot fringe right-wing figures, sometimes highly established uh, elite figures um, going as high up as uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten in the end to consider using um, armed forces to overthrow the government. And it was particularly Wilson's government uh, that was the, uh, the, 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 kind of the magnet for all of this, was well, exclusively Wilson's governments. This is hardly surprising. The first Labour government, uh, 1924, and uh, Ramsay MacDonald was brought down by, in large part by the Zinoviev letter, by, well, by um, a Whitehall bureaucratic um, uh, intransigence and by uh, MI5 uh, publishing a fake letter in the, uh, the, the, in the Times newspaper suggesting that the uh, Soviet commissar Grigory Zinoviev was uh, calling upon British communists um, and the British labour movement to um, overthrow British capitalism. Um, which was obviously um, a fraud. And if you look at the um, kind of deep state and establishment actions uh, against the, the, the Labour left uh, ever since, 
focused on uh, not just the governments of uh, Harold Wilson, who, as Labour leaders go, was a pretty centre-ground figure, but specifically against uh, Labour rights in opposition, uh, against uh, Michael Foote during the 1980s, and of course, most recently, against the Labour leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, there is a long and established tradition of um, hostility, open hostility, uh, to the, uh, the possibility of <coughs> a Labour government transforming uh, British society. There have been two instances where Labour has been largely successful in doing that. The first government, 1945 to 51, uh, and during uh, Wilson, despite the, the various um, conspiracies against him, uh, brought about significant social change and the institution of um, uh, innovations such as the Open University uh, during the first two administrations, 64 to 66 and then 66 to 1970. So today we're reading from Pinochet and Piccadilly, uh, Andy Beckett, who's a, a brilliant columnist for The Guardian and uh, a brilliant features writer for The Guardian, uh, who's written several great books on post-war British history um, wrote uh, this uh, Pinochet in Piccadilly. I think this is published in the late late nineties, and it is um, a book about that shows the connections between the the establishment British right, not the sort of the the the, the far right fascist um, uh, street British right, but the establishment British right, and General Augusto Pinochet, the dictator of Chile. And uh, Andy Beckett writes in Britain. As in Chile before Pinochet, it had long been a conventional wisdom that coups and military rule simply did not happen. Moments in the country's history that challenged this assumption, such as Cromwell's army government during the 1650s, or the flirtations of the Daily Mail and the conservative establishment with Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists during the 1930s, were not dwelt on. Yet the decade leading up to the coup in Chile, which is 1973, had, in fact, seen a revival of interest on the fringes of British politics in schemes to replace modern parliamentary democracy with something more rigid. As in Santiago, the roots of these schemes lay in a feeling among some right-wingers that the country was changing in unacceptable ways, and in particular in the frustrations of soldiers. The first real hint came over Rhodesia, in 1965, the British colony had effectively rebelled against the new Labour government in London, which wanted Rhodesia's black citizens to have more political rights by issuing a unilateral declaration of independence. Yet when the prospect arose of British military action in response, perhaps even an invasion of Rhodesia to, re to restore London's authority, rumours spread in Whitehall that British soldiers would refuse to act against the colony, which had a substantial population of white settlers with British military connections. So, uh, very much uh, in the same way that um, de Gaulle uh, ran into uh, all sorts of domestic complications uh, based uh, around the uh, colonists um, in Algeria refusing to recognise the process of decolonisation, the pied noir, um, and the connections between the uh, uh, white colonists in Algeria, uh, French nationalists in France, um, and the uh, military connection that ran between the two. Wilson uh, began to see 
that um, the white colonist government in Rhodesia was capable of causing similar sorts of, of mischief. And there were numerous uh, white British military figures in Whitehall who did not think that there was uh, any justification or any prospect of invading a minority white country in order to uh, restore a majority black government or to install a majority black government. Um, and this really talks an awful lot about the prevalence of deep colonial attitudes and racial attitudes within the British establishment by the 1960s. Um, in The decade of the late 50s to the late 60s is one where the most rapid phases of decolonisation uh, occur for Great Britain. And so uh, part of the um, sense of bewilderment that particularly many people uh, many establishment figures and many people wedded to ideas of nation and uh, national identity and flag and empire felt by the end of the 60s was that empire was just being uh, abandoned. Some uh, believed that it was uh, the result of uh, gradual, Britain's gradual diminishing world status. Others thought that this was uh, a, a kind of the result of, of, of weak or compliant or complicit um, left-wing governments, uh, and, and neither is the case really. It was the fact that Britain had uh, been, just throughout the 1960s, unable to afford, and this is particularly under Wilson, unable to afford a strong pound and unable to resist um, eventual devaluation, which comes in 1967, and to afford a welfare state, and to afford uh, foreign uh, military bases overseas. Uh, and Wilson wanted to manage to hold on to all three uh, aspects uh, all, of the uh, Britain's kind of uh, domestic, foreign and um, economic policy. And something had to give. And decolonisation, particularly the abandonment of uh, bases east of Suez, uh, was one of the, was the answer. Um, Dennis Healy, the, who was Labour's Minister of Defence, had heard rumours that there were mutinous mutterings among senior army officers. The invasion of Rhodesia didn't happen. Uh, Labour had a tiny parliamentary majority and had bigger fish to fry. Um, but there were, at that point, the, the significant part were the uh, allegations and rumours that uh, emerged gradually um, that... A mutiny over the issue of Rhodesia would have brought about the kinds of political conditions that one had seen seen in France during the 1960s. Uh, in 1977, um, Anthony Eaton, a former MI6 officer, claimed that several Scottish peers with assets in Rhodesia, uh, together with a small band of top-ranking army officers, had, in 1965 or 66 actually approached the Queen Mother with their plan for a military coup. Um, who uh, The reason for approaching the, the Queen Mother uh, was that she was thought to be the sort of person who could bring pressure to bear on the Queen because every British soldier would need, really, the, the blessing of the Crown in order to carry out these sorts of actions legally. Uh, the Queen Mother rejected these uh, proposals, um, which also involved 
kind of a rather fanciful plans for a kind of a revival of the British Empire in Africa. In 1981, another version of this story emerged in the Sunday Times. Marcia Williams, then uh, Lady Falkender, the uh, fierce and uh, vociferous uh, private secretary to uh, Harold Wilson. And if, if you want to see a really good dramatisation of the Wilson, uh, the Wilson uh, and Marcia Williams relationship, the, the most recent series of, of uh, the Netflix show The Crown really does that uh, a lot of justice. Um, Lady Falkender um, said um, she had gained the impression that meetings had taken place in the mid-60s at the Ministry of Defence in London where there was a map of the United Kingdom and people present went over the moments for a coup with a pointer. Now this was but one of the plots against Wilson. It comes to nothing but a much more significant plot centres around uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten and Andy Beckett writes. During the late 60s, as the Wilson administration struggled with the collapsing pound, anti-Vietnam militancy and an increase in strike activity, all just a taste of the militancy to come in the uh, coming decade, um, there was talk in the British newspapers of further plots. Some of these sounded relatively harmless. Cecil King the owner of the Daily Mirror, spoke up publicly for a national government of all the main parties, as there had been during the 1930s, the last time that the economic troubles and broad political enemies had coincided. But he and other prominent British company executives then went on to argue for his government to have a large business element. From there, proposals for replacing the Wilson administration grew wilder. Lord Mountbatten, the Queen's uncle, and the recently retired head of the British Armed Forces was approached by King and others, most likely senior bankers from the City of London, and asked to leave an emergency government, and even, according to some accounts, a military coup. It was rumoured in 1968 that Army Intelligence had chosen the Shetland Islands as a centre for holding political prisoners. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. just as Pinochet was to use Chile's extremities, if or when the need arose. Now, there were meetings between King uh, and Mountbatten. Uh, Cecil King uh, apparently aggrieved in, in large part uh, for not re- receiving uh, a peerage. 
Um, and Mountbatten being um, aggrieved at having uh, been forced into retirement as the uh, chief of the Imperial General Staff uh, by Wilson. Um, and the part of the, the justification was that uh, having uh, aristocrats around was not in keeping with the egalitarian facade that the Wilson government gave off. Uh, Wilson, in point of fact, uh, was not quite the man of the people uh, he appeared to be. He was a, an Oxford academic and an economist and simply posed with a pipe and uh, a, pound, a pint of brown ale periodically uh, to sort of present himself as, uh, as the working man. Wilson, in the, the second uh, part of his, his time in office uh, from 1974 to 76, had become increasingly obsessed, not with just plots against him in the Labour cabinet, but also with plots against him from the um, for, from the establishment itself, and there is some justification for this worry. Um, Wilson was becoming uh, gradually uh, more and more uh, unwell, and had been uh, diagnosed with uh, various degenerative illnesses, um, and he was uh, happy to uh, kind of uh, leave office in uh, seventy six. Uh, looking a kind of a, a, an older, tired, and more exhausted man. The Mountbatten plot didn't really get off the ground. Um, there are various conflicting accounts that Wilson told the Queen, um, and the Queen um, told Mountbatten uh, that this was a, a terribly foolish plan and he should not do it, uh, or was forbidden to do it. Um, or that Mountbatten got cold feet and decided that this was all kind of ludicrous pie-in-the-sky stuff um, and never really had uh, much uh, kind of heart in it anyway, um, or that it was uh, impressed upon the, uh, the plotters that the Americans would not support such an action uh, in um, creating a kind of a banana republic in, in Western Europe. Now, which of those three theories you believe um, is uh, kind of... It's probably beyond our abilities to, to fully verify, um, and no doubt this will all become declassified in, in decades to come. For me, the, the interesting question is what this tells us about the... Um, not just the establishment, which is to, sometimes too nebulous a term, but the army itself, and particularly the um, the, the, the chief officers of the army, the the, the the top brass, if you will, and how they saw British society changing. What British society was like in 1965 compared to 1945. The world they believed they had fought for, and the world that is actually emerging as a result, not so much of... Any, any kind of vague socialism of the Labour Party, but actually a world that results from affluence, from rising living standards, from prosperity, from greater leisure time, from more, um, uh, more ability of people to enjoy themselves, to demand more liberal lifestyles and attitudes based around um, freedom of choice, of expression, of individuality, of... Uh, uh, lifestyle choice um, and how this is kind of alien, culturally alien 
um, and alongside uh, an almost inexorable gradual decline in, in British circumstances. So Andy Beckett writes, Behind all these strategies, fantastical or otherwise, lay an undeniable change in how the British Army was beginning to regard the society around it. Since the end of the Second World War, the Army had been engaged in a series of small but brutal wars against guerrillas in British colonies such as Malaya and Kenya. By the mid-1960s, these conflicts were mostly over, and much of the empire had been dismantled. But the lessons which the British army felt it had learned, that communist subversion was a global threat, that this enemy would sometimes hide within legitimate-seeming protest organisations, came home with the soldiers. In 1969, the updated British army land manual included domestic subversives in the list of potential enemies. These were defined very widely as people who take action to undermine the military, economic or psychological morale, or political strength of the nation and the loyalty of its subjects. Two years later, a rising young brigadier called Frank Kitson took this notion of a politicised military further in a book published with the army approval called Low Intensity Operations, which we'll look at in, in just a moment. So you can imagine how um, the army in the 1960s, having fought wars in Malaya and Kenya and parts of the Middle East, um, and believing it part of, to be part of the front line against global communism and subversion, saw um, the social, cultural and political changes in British society, particularly the rising levels of protest and uh, discontent, um, and how uh, reactionary attitudes, which are form really very much the, the core of most uh, military military lives, were um, uh, stood in, in contrast with a country which was moving to greater levels of liberalisation. So, in Frank Kitson's Low Intensity Operations, he wrote, "The reader will not find in these pages a purely academic theoretical exercise." Kitson described in careful, bloodless language of army planning how soldiers might be used to counter strikes, protest marches, pickets and street corner meetings, sit-ins and various forms of obstruction of a subversive nature. Using dry-looking diagrams, he, he demonstrated how a joint military-civilian emergency government might be structured. He recommended that soldiers be specially trained to run essential services, informers be recruited, and that if necessary, the law should be used just as another weapon. He went on. In this case, it becomes little more than a propaganda cover for the, disposable of the, for the disposal of unwanted members of the public. Now, to write a manifesto like this, which is essentially what it is, um, a book advocating extreme anti-democratic violence against passive protest, it tends to suggest that um, the defence of something is a key priority. One uh, generally does not have to engage in such extreme activities unless one is trying to defend or preserve the continuity of something. One only needs to look to uh, the decline of Britain's world role, the end of the British Empire, the, de the devaluation of the pound, um, the declining deference in society, to see that people who perhaps had lived through um, one if not two world wars now saw um, 
a world that they had cherished and fought and died and their comrades had died for being gradually swept away by something that's sort of slightly beyond their ability to describe. It's not being swept away by communism. It's not being swept away by subversion. It's being swept away by uh, long-term social and economic trends in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, well, it's been swept away by things like mass consumerism and the growth in, in leisure time uh, and a new society uh, based on a far greater degree of individualism, is emerging from its ashes. Beckett writes about uh, a postscript to uh, Kitson's work. He says, By the time his book came out, Kitson had been sent to Belfast with a brigade of infantry to test out his theories in a situation that seemed to justify them. From the early 1970s onwards, the accelerating disorder in Ulster and the official British response to it, the internment of suspects without trial, the suspension of the local parliament, acted as a day, daily high-profile example of how military rule might arrive one day in the rest of the United Kingdom. And of course, in, in this book on the connections between Britain and Chile, Andy Beckett points out that um, the violence against um, protesters, the imprisonment, the uh, destruction of civil rights in Chile, actually got a, f a pretty pretty fair hearing, well not even a very fair hearing, a very favourable hearing in the British press. The Sunday Telegraph journalist Peregrine Warsthorne, after touring Chile, wrote, What is happening in Chile today unquestionably deserves a more open-minded, possibly even a more sympathetic effort at understanding from this country. I was in Chile at a as a guest of the Junta, uh, invited presumably because of my right-wing sympathies. They paid for my trip and provided me with such hospitality. Everywhere to be seen, uh, the Chilean army, um, um, he wrote, was everywhere to be seen, just as in Northern Ireland. But they appeared relaxed and friendly, and there is certainly no air of tension in towns, still less in the country, in talking to senior officers uh, including members of the Junta, there is no hint of that kind of fanatical ideological commitment out of which true horror springs. Their language is painfully reminiscent, not of Hitler, but of Field Marshal Montgomery. So, all fascist regimes need their apologists, just as there were um, left apologists for Stalin in the 1930s, um, Pinochet had his useful idiots as well, uh, it would appear. Um, and there is a long, long and inglorious history of British journalists um, kowtowing to uh, brutal foreign dictators and giving them a good PR gloss to the uh, British public. And so, and in doing so, gently um, legitimising reactionary, authoritarian and fascistic ideas uh, in uh, an otherwise notionally democratic country. So there you go, um, a, a history there of uh, what might have been. 
Um, thanks very much, and thanks very much to the new Patreons we've we've had recently. Thank you very much. Uh, the uh, support you give us is invaluable. Um, I wouldn't be able to carry on this podcast without um, a little bit of uh, revenue from you know, get a little bit from advertising and some from our patrons. So thank you so much. Very very grateful. And if you'd like to uh, back us so that the, the podcast can keep going, check out Explaining History on Patreon. Uh, and um, any and all donations gratefully accepted. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.